Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm joined for an end of year special by Jeremy Shapiro, the research director at ECFR. And this year, what we're going to do is something which is very rare in the think tank world, which is to hold ourselves accountable for the predictions we made for 2016 and recklessly to return to the scene of the crime and make some predictions for 2017. So in our end of year podcast last year, we predicted 13 trends for 2016. So Jeremy, how did we do? Well, we did, um, you know, not well, but better than can be expected, I think. Uh, 2016 was a, a, a real dickhead of a year. Uh, I think there's no getting around that, and it was not good for our profession um, and not good for anybody's predictions. But within that context, we did all right. But I wanted to run through quickly the 13 predictions we went through and um, grade them uh, as to whether we, they were right or not. Um, of course, this is uh, self-grading, which has always been critical to my career. Um, so, but I think it still will try to be, you know, a little bit honest and, you know, not very. Um, but we need the help, frankly. Uh, first is we said that the proxy war between Russia and the U.S. and Syria would intensify, and this seems to have been wrong. Uh, it seems very clear that the U.S. made a decision fairly early in the year not to intensify the ongoing, what was at that point a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia, and instead to seek to uh, engage the Russians in peace talks. didn't really work, but it did, uh, I would argue, uh, avoid some of the greater escalations that were possible in Syria. It's always a little bit difficult to say that things could have been worse, but they could have been. Uh, the second was the hardening of attitudes uh, towards refugees. Uh, that we Take. predicted would ha would happen in Europe. We got that one right. Uh, we'd have to admit that it was an easy one. Um, but certainly uh, the atmosphere for refugees got a lot worse in Europe in 2016. So uh, the third one was the slow erosion of the consensus on Russia. And uh, I think we were wrong on that. But maybe we'll be right for 2017 because it looks like it was even slower than, than we predicted. But the erosion looks unlikely to survive uh, President Trump's uh, ascension to the to the White House. That's our that's our motto. Actually, is uh, always right, but sometimes very slowly. Unfortunately, uh, it might be a very slow one on number four though, because we predicted that Britain would re-enter Europe after a success in the in the referendum on on Brexit. It's all about timescale. <laughs> so um, the fifth one was about European solidarity eroding even further. I think that was an easy uh, prediction. We were right about that. The sixth one was about Europe's mainstream Canutes. We were uh, of the view that um, the, the more mainstream parties would engage in electoral sleight of hand to try to turn the tide back and to, uh, and to sort of form broader and broader coalitions that would essentially reduce European politics to mainstream parties versus, versus populist parties. And it, uh, that seems to have been the case. So we're, we're, taking, a, we're taking a yes on that one. And then the next one was the, the nihilistic trend in, is, in Islam uh, intensifies, and I think that's uh, tragically been the case. Yeah. Uh, the eighth one was that Germany would become more like the U.S., which we meant that uh, as Germany becomes more and more overwhelmed by the refugee crisis and other, uh, and other domestic problems, we would see it taking on the foreign policy character of the U.S. in previous decades, which means exercising 
more leadership. And I think that that, in fact, happened. We, we saw Germany exercising a lot of leadership on issues like Ukraine and the refugee crisis. And then we said that the U.S. was going to become more like Germany, by which we meant that it was going to become more and more defined by its own direct interests and hasten its move away from global watchdog. I think we might have even undershot with that prediction. Yeah, we should probably get two around. points for that prediction, actually. <laughs> uh, the next was the we were predicting the rise of geo- geoeconomics, which is that countries around the world would want to strike out at each other and that they would use geoeconomic tools, sanctions, boycotts, cyber attacks, public divestment campaigns, etc., to attack each other. And that seems to have been very much the case in 2016. That trend definitely continued. Another double tick. But double tick. sadly, the, the next one's a bit more ambiguous because we said except in Russia. We said that Russia would use lots of geoeconomic tools. Its comparative advantage remains in its military. So they're kind of mixed views on whether we were right or wrong on that one because they did use their, their um, geoeconomic tools but actually they worked and we predicted they wouldn't work particularly well. They did bring Turkey back down to heel uh, after the downing of the uh, of, of the Russian plane. Um, but they also did obviously use their, their military tools in, in Syria. So do you think we should get a point for that or not? I think, it's a, I think we get a half point for that one. Okay. Uh, the, the 12th trend that we predicted was that there would be no hard landing for China, that uh, China's economic growth slowdown wouldn't result in any sort of major financial crash or major recession. Uh, which was something that was very strongly predicted at the end of last year. And we seem to have been correct about that one. The Chinese economy um, plugs along, not not in fantastic shape, but certainly not having had a hard landing. Uh, the last one was tragically wrong, though. Turkey's return to the West, I think, uh, has has been a slow one, if, if, if there has been a return at all. So what does that, how does that add up? I think it adds up to we got seven and a half out of 13. Is, uh, it's not great, but considering what a horrible year 2016 was. Uh... It's a gentleman's C, which is the most that we can hope for. But let's uh, let's see if we can do better next year. I think the challenge which we felt last year, which is maybe going to be true this year, is, is uh, whether to be interesting or, or to try and be right. And actually, maybe something slightly counterintuitive happened next year. Because I think where we tried to be right and follow the conventional wisdom we often ended up on the wrong side of history. The Brexit vote is the most classic uh, example of the genre. So maybe if we want to get right, we should uh, we should go against the conventional wisdom for 2017. It works for me. I'd always <laughs> rather be interesting than right, which has been almost the hallmark of my work so far. So I think we should continue in that vein. Okay, so um, for next year, we're going to start with... Uh, something where we are, I suppose, more slightly following the conventional wisdom. But we think the Europe and European foreign policy is going to be overwhelmed by elections. Uh, There are 28 member states of the EU. They tend to be on sort of four or five year uh, electoral cycles. So it's not that surprising that there are a lot of elections in any given year. But 2017 is going to be marked by some really big existential ones. Uh, The ones that people are most focused on are the elections in, in France and Germany. But there are other ones uh, in the Netherlands, in Bulgaria, in the Czech Republic, and and possibly uh, even in Italy, where um, if the five star movement wins, we could see a a referendum on uh, Italy's membership of the euro and a mini financial crisis ensuing. But the biggest story, I think it will be whether Marine Le Pen wins in France and uh, because that could be uh, an event even bigger than, uh, than Brexit in terms of the future of the EU. Yeah, I think what that means is that we're almost going to hear nothing out of Europe except stories of election in elections in the next year. 
And one of the surprising things is that these elections are going to be very much defined by foreign policy issues and will have a huge impact on foreign policy. So expect to see lots about immigration, the refugee crisis, terrorism, but even uh, more kind of uh, systemic issues like uh, trade and globalization and defense and Russia as part of these uh, electoral battles. The second trend uh, is that we think that Russia will return to the West in a certain way, but maybe return as a victor. Which And we think the symbol of that will be that Putin will attend uh, the G7 meeting at the invitation of his new friend, President Trump, uh, which is in Sicily at the end of May. And that will begin uh, the slow erosion of the sanctions against Russia. So the third trend will be the attempt by Europeans to try and defend the world order which they have relied on for many years, which will lead them to create strange bedfellows. So the third trend we're predicting is a Sino-European axis emerging to support the global free trading system, to support the Paris climate deal. And um, we uh, are hopefully going to see, well, maybe not hopefully, but we're likely to see that starting to come into focus uh, when Xi Jinping appears in Europe, in Davos, in, in January, a place where Donald Trump will be noticeably absent. Uh, the fourth trend, I think, is that the Syrian civil war will fail to end. This was certainly conventional wisdom in uh, every year of the past five up till now, but I think that uh, now people are assuming that the Russian, the Russian Iranian, Syrian uh, capture of Aleppo means that the war is going into its final phases and that the and that the uh, opposition will be militarily eliminated very soon. Uh, I think, in fact, that victory in Aleppo will not translate into political victory, as the civil war in Syria will likely move more toward an insurgency phase, although there will certainly be important military aspects in Idlib and versus ISIS, uh, and that the Russians will begin uh, in 2017 to tire of the slow trickle of casualties amongst their soldiers, even even amongst their diplomatic corps, and will become even more sick of dealing with Assad and his in, incessant demands for full-scale victory. So the, the next trend we're going to talk about is the, the Turkey refugee deal. Uh, I think here we're going to go against the conventional wisdom, which sees a total breakdown in European relations with Turkey. It's certainly going to be a central feature of a lot of the election campaigns uh, next year. A lot of uh, parties will be subliminally running against Turkey. However, the deal, though it's going to be tattered and abused by all sides, is probably going to manage to, to stagger on through 2018 because it's so important to the future of Germany, which is obviously the, the biggest and the most important member state in the European Union. And Erdogan, um, though he uh, is definitely uh, very ambivalent about the, the European Union and the West, uh, I think can ill afford to close off the possibility of visa-free access for, for the Turkish middle class as part of his campaign to secure a presidential a constitutional majority so that he can change the, the Turkish constitution. Our sixth trend is about the fate of the Iran deal. Uh, we think, I think, and it's no surprise, that the Americans will uh, abandon the Iran deal, if not formally, then de facto, uh, by passing new sanctions and by becoming very tight on the um, on the relief that was promised to the Iranians under the JCPOA, uh, but we think uh, 
somewhat more counter to conventional wisdom that the Europeans will actually work to maintain it, that they will not want to see the deal go away and that they will uh, struggle with the United States uh, over whatever secondary sanctions the United States uh, imposes. And so we might find a return to the uh, to the 1990s Helms-Burton era when there was a lot of transatlantic disagreement over the question of sanctions against Iran. So the seventh trend is about the Brexit negotiations, which we are predicting will go nowhere. 2016 has changed almost everything in the world, except for how uh, governments are thinking about Brexit. Uh, On the British side, there is uh, an extraordinary uh, solipsism to the way that the government's thinking about these things, as if the only independent variable that's changed is Britain leaving the European Union, and as if Britain can count on the global trading system continuing to exist in its current form, the global security system and NATO and the American security guarantees continuing as they were beforehand, and uh, an international order that works reasonably well. So therefore, they think that they can focus on keeping the Conservative Party as united as possible and just look at how you can extract uh, marginal advantages to the uh, for, for the UK from the from the negotiations. So therefore, there's no real uh, thinking about how Britain can invest in in delivering uh, greater security for, for 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 the European continent or actually underpinning this system which is crumbling. And from an EU side. Their big fear is that there will be uh, a domino effect as a result of Britain leaving. So you get this kind of deadly syllogism about how uh, clubs have rules and benefits. Uh, You can't get the benefits if you don't follow the rules. There has to be a difference between being inside of the club and outside of the club and being outside of the club has to be worse. So therefore, there's going to be a pattern of negotiations which was honed during the Greek crisis where the EU comes to a consensus on a particular issue and offers it on a take-it-or-leave-it basis to the other party. And if they don't take it, then you make the deal progressively worse until they they crumble. We've seen that starting with Barnier's uh, demand for €50 billion uh, of contributions on pensions and other issues before uh, 20, which takes us to 2030. And many of the British side don't necessarily believe that's going to happen it will ha- it will be what they stick to but so the danger is of a of a kind of non-negotiated brexit with britain simply falling out and that harming both sides mm. so we can predict actually that we'll probably also make this prediction next year yeah because it's it's definitely not going to happen in 2017 but i think we'll be well on the way to it happening by the end of 2017 uh okay the um the eighth trend that we see is what we're calling the 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 danger of the of the marginalization of the EU periphery. We think that while the core of the EU or the eurozone or some parts of it will be will be uh, devising new ways to keep the union alive in 2017 or be transfixed with elections, the periphery of the EU, uh, particularly the new eastern countries, um, will be either voluntarily, in the case of the Visegrad countries or by neglect, in the case of some of the southeastern European countries, drifting toward marginalization and forced to cope with their challenges on their own. And so this will mean for a lot of them, like Bulgaria or Greece, that uh, the outer EU border will be their responsibility and that they'll have to deal with things like Russia, Turkey, rapprochement, without a lot of help from core EU members. 
So the ninth trend is maybe uh, a slightly uh, utopian uh, one, but uh, we're going to make it any. We're going to make this prediction anyway, which is that Europe finally gets serious about spending on defence, cooperating on defence and security issues, spurred on both by the fear of Russia, the terrorist attacks, but also the fact that Trump is withdrawing from Europe. And there are various different bits, which you can already see, more countries getting to spending 2% on defence. They've been talking about launching permanent structured cooperation, which is a kind of deepening of cooperation, which could have 12 to 15 member states in it. And they're both going to come up with targets for how to to spend together so that the money actually gets a bigger bang for its buck, but also uh, particular projects. And the hope is that this both happens, that the US welcomes it all and that NATO accommodates it and that Trump declares victory on his uh, desire to get others to start stepping up to the plate and paying for their own security. Uh, the 10th trend is the um, is less optimistic. I think it's the it's the end of the two state solution uh, in the Israel-Palestine problem. Uh, we think that um, this the, the idea of a two state solution has frankly been limping along for the last couple of years. It's something that people are unwilling. Couple of years. Yeah, less, couple of decades. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, but really, for the last couple of years, it's been a, a, a total fiction. I mean, it's very clear that the Israeli government is not really committed to it anymore. It's very clear that no one, none of the, nobody on the outside is really willing to do what it would take to move forward on it. Um, but everybody has been attracted to the notion of pretending that it's still the case. Um, and we think that in 2017 that will end. And one of the spurs for it to end will be um, the moving of the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem and the general uh, change in the U.S. government t- tone toward the Israeli government, which will essentially become, you know, do whatever you want, um, which I know might surprise a lot of people in Europe to hear what wasn't already the case. Uh, there is an upside to this, actually. It's mostly a bad news story, but there is an upside because I think once, uh, once we move beyond what has become the fiction of the two-state solution, we can th- start to think about new, uh, new solutions, new ways of moving forward, which might actually bring a settlement. It's hard to imagine at the moment what they might be, but we ha- we're working very hard at them uh, here at ECFR, and we can at least be hopeful that by pushing aside a solution which was a very good idea but just has not worked, we'll actually be able to move toward a more productive solution. So those are the 10 trends, but we're going to give you an extra one because we believe in giving real value for money. So, yeah. But we don't want to be graded on this one. <laughs> Ashley, uh, I'm not sure. We'll see. we'll see whether we're right or wrong before we choose to be graded on it or not. Good plan. <laughs> so this one is, uh, is maybe also a kind of hopeful one, but... Uh, it's been assumed that the intermingling of Donald Trump's uh, personal business interests with the American national interests in his kind of psyche and in his policies is something which will be bad for the liberal order and bad for Europe. But we wonder if maybe it could be a good thing if uh, this could actually be uh, a source of surprising untapped leverage for, for Europeans. So what we are going to predict is that Europeans will start to use Trump's the Trump organization's investments in Europe as a way of getting greater leverage on the US in support of, uh, of European foreign policy interests. So it's weaponizing golf courses such as Donald Trump's um, uh, big investment in Turnbury in, in Scotland. Uh, so those are our those are the trends that we predict. Um, we're going to do the same exercise next year where we're going to 
hold ourselves up. If you have a different view on how well we did last year or what the trends should be for next year, we'd very much welcome uh, your opinions, as even if you think that we were overly generous in grading ourselves. Yeah, I mean, we felt pretty bad, actually, when we had a, a first look at them. But then um, uh, one of our colleagues, in fact, the researcher for this podcast, uh, Ulrike Franke, went through some of the other people's predictions at the end of the year. And I think given that we've been willing to hold ourselves up to scrutiny, it's not overly um, uh, uncollegial to, to, to look at, for example, what the Financial Times predicted last year, including Merkel resigning, the UK remaining in the European Union, Clinton beating Cruz in the uh, in the election, um, Rousseff not being impeached, and my favourite of all predictions uh, was Belgium winning the the Euro uh, uh, the European Cup, which is um, uh, something which would have been wonderful. Actually, I, I was often. Uh, uh, very excited by Belgium's performance because as a, as a child who grew up in Belgium, um, I knew that Belgium was a, the, the whole notion of Belgium was a fiction uh, most of the time. But every 10 or 20 years, the Diable Rouge, the Belgian football team would do very well and suddenly the national identity would actually take on a real form and people would run around through the Grand Place and other areas, tooting their horns and, uh, and, and waving the Belgian flag with pride, uh, only for that to disappear again as Belgium uh, sunk further in its, uh, in its performance in international sporting competitions. So um, anyway, if, if you have uh, any comments on our ideas or any big trends that you think we've missed, please uh, don't hesitate to, to write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do uh, write about it on your Facebook page or on ours, which is www.facebook.com slash ECFR Think Tank, or give us a review or ranking on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Mixcloud, or whatever platform you're using to to listen to us um, on. And... If not, um, from Jeremy Shapiro, myself, Mark Leonard, uh, it's goodbye and a very happy Christmas and a wonderful 2017, which will be defined by the, the trends, we hope, that we've just outlined. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Bulin Goemin. <laughs>